Hey, are you into werewolves, mad scientists, and a little bit of witchcraft? Then stay tuned for an all-new episode of Watch Corner. We're riding this train straight into the sun. Woo! Tune in to a classic episode of Watts Corner on the Seltzer Kings Network. Available on all podcast platforms. Let's, uh, let's not do the whole compare variety music TV host there, Gavin, because I just got one name for you. Jimmy Savile. Yes. The following podcast contains... Ooh, all that foul language. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you uh, when you started that 24-hour-a-day music video channel with only like six hours of music videos, uh, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is episode number 406, ladies and gentlemen, rock and roll edition of the show, where we're talking about music videos and the channel they created. Stay tuned. What the hell are you thinking? Podcast is brought to you by Dave TV, the last remaining channel on television playing music videos and nothing but music videos. Do you remember the days when music television meant music on television? Of course you don't. You're either too young or to have seen it, or so old your mind is slowly going. The good news is Dave TV is here to bring back the glory days of music videos on television. Due to certain licensing restrictions and copyright complaints, all of our videos are Dave doing covers of famous songs at a webcam off-key with a MIDI karaoke backing track. And the channel can only be seen on Channel 292 in Bergen, New Jersey, at public access between 3 a.m. and 3.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings. But still, it's the only place where music lives on television. Dave TV, where music lives. Not affiliated with Dave Lee Roth. Seven, six, five, four. We've gone for main engine start. We have main engine start. Rock and roll. This is it. Welcome to MTV Music Television, the world's first 24-hour stereo video music channel. Just moments ago, all of the VJs and the crew here at MTV collectively hit our executive producer, Sue Steinberg, over the head with a bottle of champagne, and behold, a new concept is born. The best of TV combined with the best of radio. Now, starting right now, you'll never look at music the same way again. We'll be right back to introduce the other VJs and the other folks who are going to be with us on MTV. On August 1st, 1981, I would have been a little over 12 years old and living in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. It's in Oklahoma. I would love to tell you that I was there when the famous countdown started on the biggest thing that happened to music since Edison stole the phonograph from some other nameless inventor. I haven't heard that before. Well, I actually haven't heard that either, but it's Edison, so chances are it's true. There are a couple of reasons why I wasn't there for the launch of MTV, the biggest of which was it kicked off at midnight, and if my parents caught me out of bed at that hour watching TV, they would have, uh, they would have tanned my hide. He is a very willful boy. Also... <laughs> I had no idea the channel was launching, and even if I had, I, I wouldn't have cared about a 24-hour music video channel. Now, a 24-hour cartoon channel? You got my attention, mister. But that wouldn't come along for like another 11 years, and by then, I was a grown-up. Well, I find that highly unlikely. 
But okay. Maybe. It would be several years for this new way of listening to music by watching music videos would come to my attention. Puberty? No, I mean, yes, but no. He's a sexual late bloomer. It had a lot more to do with geography and technology, okay? I mentioned before that my family moved to Guam in my early teens. To avoid prosecution? No, my dad wasn't a coke kingpin. He was in the Air Force. Now, Guam in the mid-1980s didn't have cable television, but hell, it barely had any television. And what TV we did have was a one-week tape delay from Los Angeles and flown over from the States and broadcast on the local stations and armed forces TV. And music videos were not deemed important by the powers that be. Unlike, say, for example, uh, reruns of Airwolf. MTV until 1985 when we came back stateside and got our first cable hookup. And by that time, I was into music, and I was into music videos as a reliable vehicle to see scantily clad young women dancing with very few clothes on as legally possible to porn and still appear on television. I was a sensitive creature with impeccable taste. This was fortunate for me because by the time I started watching MTV, it was at the pinnacle of MTV's existence. They were playing incredible music and legit changing how people interacted with music in a way that, as we'll see, shaped an entire generation. But let me be honest, it didn't start out that way because in those early days, it kind of sucked. This week, we're talking not so much about MTV itself, which has been widely covered in myriad of ways, because I'm here to tell you about what created MTV. Capitalism. Uh, as with all things, we need to go back as close to the beginning as we can begin. In this case, it begins in the 1940s. had been in the movies before the movies had sound in them. Live performers would play music in theaters when it was portrayed on screen. But it would take something new for singular musical performances to be portrayed on film, and that came along And when the Mills Novelty Company of Chicago noticed that people like music, people like watching movies, and came up with a way, and this crazy idea, that people might pay to watch movies with music on them. I'd buy that for a dollar. So they got some three-minute, 16-millimeter recordings, big band leaders of the day, folks like Bing Crosby, Cab Calloway, Duke Ellington, even Lawrence Welk, and put eight of them on a film, film reel and called them Soundies. Soundies were then put in a device called a Panoram, creating the very first video jukebox. A Panoram was a nearly seven-foot-tall box that focused the projection on a glass screen and played the sound through speakers in the base of the box. Customers would drop a dime in the box and the Soundie would play. You couldn't choose what song would play, it would play whatever soundy was up next on the reel. The panorams cost around a, ground each, around a grand each, around 26000 in today's dollars. And when the machines debuted in 1941, Mills did a million dollars in sales in the very first week. <laughs> That's good money. Panorams were everywhere, diners, bars, even train stations. They were a huge hit and proved there was a massive market for people watching musicians on screen. 
But uh, something was in the wind that would make the panorama obsolete before the end of the decade. It's a television. Yeah, and it goes without saying. You know what will happen anyway. That as soon as there was television, there were musicians on television performing. The reason for this was very, very simple. You like music, I like music, you like music, right? Well, yeah, but more to the point, there wasn't a lot of stuff to show on television. The early days of TV, you, you didn't have like any pre-recorded content, and the idea just some guy talking into the camera telling you news and weathers for hours at a time was idiotic. No one would watch that. Simple at times, huh? So, they went with what they had, and what they had were preachers and musicians. Often they were a match set. In the early day, TV ran tons more live music because every town had people who could play and sing. And as TV evolved in the network's form, they stuck with what had become variety shows. Music, comedians, a charming host bantering with guests, and they stuck with them because they were cheap to produce and extremely popular. Even when scripted shows became available, the variety show remained extremely popular, and the biggest, baddest variety show daddy was none other than Mr. <laughs> Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Tonight, live from New York, The Ed Sullivan Show. From its premiere, June 20th, 1948, The Ed Sullivan Show featured big-name music guests as part of the main draw. The very first Ed Sullivan Show featured Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis performing along with the singer Monica Lewis and Broadway composers Rodgers and Hammerstein previewing the score for their then-new show, South Pacific. Look at Martin and Lewis. Yeah, they did. They did. It's impossible to tell the history of modern American music without talking about the Ed Sullivan Show. And as unlikely as it may seem for a vaudeville Borscht alumni like Ed Sullivan, he was critical to the genre that would become Rock and Over Roll. There are other shows out there like Milton Berle that feature the early greats of rock before they appeared on Ed Sullivan, but it was Ed Sullivan appearances that made them household names. And it pretty much began with the with this guy right here. And now, ladies and gentlemen, yes, that's right, Elvis Presley. 60 million people watched Elvis Presley appear on Ed Sullivan in all of his from the waist up only glory. That uh, number would be paltry compared to a few years later when some British lads made their American TV debut on Ed Sullivan. 70 Three million people, more than a third of every living human being alive in the United States at the time, tuned in for... You ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles! The Associated Press wrote in 1964, quote, The Beatles, four British lads who sing when they're not busy running away from barbers, made their American television debut last night. And uh, some things may never be the same. The seats in the Columbia Broadcasting System studio where they appeared live on Ed the Ed Sullivan Variety Show were given more of a workout by jumping and squirming teenage girls than were the singers in their fast-moving routine. The four mop-top entertainers who came here Friday from London provided their own musical background with string and percussion instruments. And throughout their two appearances on the show, 721 members of the audience, mostly young girls, kept up a steady stream of squeals, sighs, and yells, unquote. The Fab Four and Elvis were just the biggest names among very big names. Other performances on the Ed Sullivan Show included the Rolling Stones, the Doors, sensational Motown acts like the Jackson Five, the Supremes, and the Temptation. Sullivan would actually be instrumental in breaking the color barrier for Motown singing it's into a very white and very racist mainstream America. 
Of course, there were other shows that would join the early music on TV pantheon that have had smaller audiences than Sullivan, but their uh, impact was perhaps larger. Bald spot, beer gut. I don't, I don't have a bald spot. I mean, I, I got a, like a naturally thin patch of the crown of my skull that's clearly covered in fully by hair. It, it just looks thin when I have a fresh haircut. I just noticed something that in one of your interviews with John Candy, I believe, it looked like an older interview. You had less hair than you have today. How do you explain that? I, uh, I don't wear a wig, sir. Paint your bald spot? What bald spot? You paint your bald spot? I don't know what you're talking about, sir. My hair grows. You paint your bald spot? I don't have a bald spot. How come you had less hair on the tape? Maybe my hair grew. Maybe I had a bad haircut that day. By the way, or something, why do you care? Paint your bald spot? I don't. Do you paint your bald spot? Paint your bald spot? You're sick. What was I talking about? Oh, oh, right. I, I was going to talk about the other big shows like... Uh... <laughs> Hollywood, it's time for America's favorite dance party, American Bandstand. This portion brought to you by Dick Clark! Wikipedia tells me, quote, American Bandstand premiered locally in late March of 1952 as uh, Bandstand on Philadelphia television station WFIL-TV Channel 6, now WPVI-TV, as a replacement for a weekday movie that had shown predominantly British films. Hosted by Bob Horn as a television adjunct to his radio show of the same name on WFIL Radio, Bandstand featured short musical films produced by Snader Telescriptions and official films with an occasional studio guest. This incarnation was an early version of the music video shows that became popular in the 1980s, featuring films that were the ancestors of music videos. Horn, however, was disenchanted with the program and wanted to change the show to a dance program with teenagers dancing along on camera as records played, based on the idea that came from a radio show on WPEN, the 950 Club, hosted by Joe Grady and Ed Hurst. This more familiar version of Bandstand debuted October 7th, 1952, unquote. Well, uh, as things would have it, Horn, Horn was, uh, he was fired from Bandstand after his mini DUI's arrest and, uh, <laughs> uh, rumors that he was uh, involved in a prostitution ring. Allegedly. And would be replaced a short period later by the most wholesome man in America, Dick Clark, who would go on to host Bandstand until its end in 1989. Bandstand was not properly speaking a music video show. It was primarily a dance show featuring young people dancing to the hits of the day interspersed with live performances of the artists of the time, usually lip-syncing to their popular songs, and trying to bone the young women dancers. Happened a lot. Bandstand was important in showcasing new artists and introduced such acts as Prince, Jackson 5, Sonny and Cher, Aerosmith, and Aerosmith. Bandstand was joined by its sister show for the Sisters and Brothers. The Featuring Don Cornelius and a much more ethnically diverse cast of dancers and performers that premiered in 1971. I gotta be honest with you. I hated hearing that Soul Train intro. It was like a huge bummer for me as a kid. Jeez, you are racist. No, 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 I was like eight. It just meant it just meant the Saturday morning cartoons were officially over and grown-up TV was starting. I didn't even know what a Soul Train was, I swear. As I said, we still, strictly speaking, haven't gotten to the shows that featured what we now consider a music video. And you probably never will. I'm working on it. 
This is a bigger topic than it looks like on the surface. Our next stop on the road to rock and roll is a, late, is a later TV show that was created by TV producer Burt Sugarman and hosted by an iconic radio DJ. Got the Wolfman Jack Show. Except it wasn't called the Wolfman Jock Show. It was called the Midnight Special. Tonight's Midnight Special brought to you by Chevrolet. Chevrolet, building a better way to see the USA. And now, 7-Up, the uncaller says sit back. Let the Midnight Special shine its light on you. Here's Helen Reddy. Debuted on NBC as a legit special, meaning it was just something made to fill a spot in August of 1972. The show began its run after The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson every Friday in February of 1973. This show broke televised as well as musical around since it was the first network show to actually run past the traditional sign-off of Around Midnight. And according to Wikipedia, quote, it premiered with ratings high enough for NBC to reconsider its decision, and the network subsequently bought the program. NBC also reasoned that the additional weekly hour and a half of television programming would allow NBC to recoup some revenue lost as a result to the Public Health Cigarette Smoking Act, which banned the advertising of tobacco of television, effective January 1st, 1971, unquote. The Midnight Special ran until 1981, and the show featured performers actually performing live. And I mean actually live, with live instruments, not just lip-syncing to a dub track. It was a who's fucking who of 70s and 80s music. The musical acts that were on the Midnight Special are far too long for me to list, but suffice to say that it spanned from ABBA to Ziggy Stardust, or rather, David Bowie's last performance as Ziggy Stardust, and pretty much everyone in between. You should definitely watch the show on YouTube if you were at all interested in classic rock, but still... It was not a music video show. Since the late 1960s, bands had been creating short films featuring their music. The Beatles loved them because they used them instead of having to appear in person to promote their music. And by this time, the Beatles well and truly hated each other's fucking guts. These short films were not all concert performances, though many were. Some were self-contained narrative arcs set to a specific song. There were, at their core, a commercial for the song. Other bands began using them after the Beatles and experimenting with the form. Early punk bands loved them as a way to showcase their music since their music was so loathed by radio executives. And so the bands created short films that would be shown in clubs where people would see them and then hopefully buy the band's records. But some bands, some bands began to experiment with the form and use these short films or videos since videotape technology had now become cheap enough and ubiquitous enough to be go mainstream. One band in particular had the vision to use the format to go beyond the advertisement and actually define the band's vision for the song you were listening to. You're a, you're probably familiar with a little ditty. Is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? Bohemian Rhapsody. And that video created quite the stir in 75 when it was released. Now, the genre of these little mus musical short videos was far more popular in Britain than it was in the States. And it was down under that showcased the first true music video show in 1974. If you were around to watch the advent of music film clips, today we call them video clips and music DVDs, you'll know how it all came about. Sound Unlimited was off and running. TheHistoryChannel.com tells us, quote, two weekly teen-oriented music programs premiered in Australia in 1974. Both prominently featured music videos, some of which were created especially for the shows. As Countdown and Sounds quickly earned a devoted following, the format spread to other countries around the world, unquote. 
The first few years of MTV featured so much music from overseas that it actually launched the second British invasion in 1982 that brought so many British pop and new wave songs to America. And the whole reason you know about... I'll give you yet another topic. Duran Duran is neither a Duran nor a Duran. <laughs> Discuss. Talk amongst yourselves. Because MTV desperately needed content and American bands didn't have any. Wikipedia explains, quote, Music videos, having been a staple of British music television for five years, had evolved into image-conscious short films. At the same time, pop and rock music in the U.S. was undergoing a creative slump due to several factors, including audience fragmentation, the effects of the anti-disco backlash that reached its peak with the disco demolition night, unquote. Check out episode number 361, the night they drove old disco down, for the full story on that one. But what we still lacked was a central clearinghouse for this whole new music video thing. And that came in a form of a channel right here in the good old US of America that would probably come from one of the most illogical and unlikely places you can imagine. Here it is, kids, Columbus, Ohio. Tedium.co gives us the story of Cube with a Q, the very first interactive cable TV network. How is this relevant? Listen and learn, fuckers. Quote, in 1975, Warner Communications CEO Steve Roche was inspired by a closed-circuit television system in Tokyo's Otani Hotel developed by Pioneer Electronics. The system had some rudimentary interactive features, so Warner engaged Pioneer to develop a set-top box that would bring interactive television to a wider audience. Warner owned a small cable system in Columbus and set out to improve upon it with both a wider variety of programs and with interactivity. Thus, Cube was born. Columbus, Ohio is frequently referred to as the ideal test market with a demographic that closely mirrors that of much of the U.S. easy access to road via air from much of the country and an educated population due to the numerous colleges and universities in the area. It's a town that sees plenty of new ideas before they go national. Now, the heart of Cube was pairing a console in each home with a studio-based computer that pulled every box in the system every six seconds. 30 stations was a revelation in 1977. Beyond the usual local network affiliates, independent stations from Cleveland, Indianapolis, and Cincinnati were beamed into Cube Homes, and 10 slots on the big, weird remote control were dedicated to community-specific channels, including home shopping and music. Ah, there it is. For more, we jump to bettermarketing.pub. Quote, Warner Cable launched the first two-way interactive television system in Columbus, Ohio. It was called Cube. We've established that. And it could offer several specialty channels. One specialty channel they had was called Sight on Sound. It was a music channel, but would show clips from certain concerts and shows. There weren't really music videos to speak of, so it was more a channel to showcase music in various formats. Since Cube was interactive, viewers could engage by voting on things like their favorite artists' songs and albums. The concept of a music channel was an intriguing one. Robert W. Pittman would be the driving force behind MTV. He got the idea when he used to host a 15-minute show called Album Tracks in New York City in the late 1970s. This idea and the new interactive format being used by Warner Cable would set the stage for MTV. The concept for MTV was all put together and the format would be playing these video clips of current songs. It's not that music videos didn't exist, but they were definitely not commonplace. The idea was to combine the airplay of a few available music videos, but keep them playing 24 hours a day. They only had seven months to launch the new concept. They wanted MTV up and running by summer, as this is when most fads begin. MTV launched at 12.01 Eastern Time, August 1st, 1981. The channel debuted with the phrase, Ladies and gentlemen, rock and roll. This was spoken by John Lack and was played over footage of the countdown to the launch of the Space Shuttle Columbia. 
here's the thing. It was actually the launch of a Saturn V rocket and mixed with the Space Shuttle Columbia. But, you know, we'll just let that slide. This then kicked into the original MTV theme song while an image of an American flag on the moon changed to the MTV logo. And what was the very first song that play after this on MTV? Video Kill the Radio Star by The Buggles. The concept of playing videos 24-7 was a new one, and unfortunately, the technology wasn't quite there yet. There would often be periods of complete black on the screen as an employee would have to physically switch tapes into a new, v into a new machine called a VCR. There were also a lot of repeats in those early days as there were only a few hundred music videos in the system. MTV would have to put in stock NASA footage every 20 past the hour for local availability, which is where local cable companies could sell advertising. Since no one wanted to buy advertising, they were stuck having to fill this empty time slot. Many people would think that the NASA footage was the music videos. The NASA connection is the reason MTV Awards used the Moon Man, unquote. Why, you might ask, is NASA footage the go-to for this? Because NASA footage is free to use to anyone. It belongs to the people of the United States of America, so anyone can freely use it for anything they want, even porn. No, I'm, I'm actually being told now that you can't actually use it for porn. NASA will sue you. MTV was not the overnight success many people believe it was today. If you really want to know who made MTV, it was one man. A man that would go on to become beloved and then eventually extremely problematic. Yes, Mr. Michael Jackson, which ironically, MTV wouldn't even play black musicians before this video. The video that put MTV on the goddamn map. And why wouldn't MTV play black music? Racism. Yeah, I mean, obviously, but that's not what they said. They said black music isn't rock and roll, despite actually being stolen entirely from black musicians. Tubies.org wrote, quote, Allegations featured claims of MTV giving scant airtime to videos featuring black people and people of color overall. Nonetheless, MTV officials denied that racism was at the root of the network's blackout. They instead gave the reason that black artists received little airplay because their music didn't fit the channel's rock-based format. MTV was originally designed to be a rock music channel, said Buzz Brindle, MTV's former director of music program in 2006. It was difficult for MTV to find an African-American artist whose music fit the channel's format that leaned towards rock at the outset, unquote. And again, I have to repeat for the people in the back who maybe didn't hear me the first time, rock and roll was nothing but black music stolen by white people. Nevertheless... It did indeed take black musicians, or at least Michael Jackson, to turn MTV into the cultural phenomenon it became by the late 1980s and to make it define music in America. More than breaking the color barrier, Michael Jackson created the art of the music videos. Early videos were either straight concert footage or some sort of esoteric kitsch. 
Even Bohemian Rhapsody was more a pastiche than a narrative. Jackson made videos into proper works of art in their own genre, related to, but distinct from, movies and television. After his huge video hits, other artists were free to break out of the confines of here's a band playing to a crowd, here's the band doing funny stuff behind the scenes, here's some half-naked women dancing. I mean, a lot of them still did do that. I bless you and your important work. But if a band wanted to, they couldn't make videos like R.E.M.'s Losing My Religion, Peter Gabriel's Sledgehammers, or the Beastie Boys' Sabotage, just to name a few off the top of my head. Also, music videos could allow the artists to speak in ways they couldn't on their record albums because the record companies effectively muzzled them via their contracts. George Michael's Freedom 90 was a giant fuck you to his label and also redefined who he was as a musician for his fans. And all of this was possible through music videos and MTV, for better and for worse. Chrissy Hind of The Pretenders told Loudersound.com in an interview in 2021, quote, I grew up in the late 1960s, you know, AM radio, then went into FM radio. AM radio was coast to coast, and it was very regional. Every city had its own radio station and its own playlist. When MTV came along, it got filtered into one thing. It had to go first through a video, often a soft porn video, because some of the artists knew what sold, and that became sort of dance music, I guess. It wasn't rock and roll anymore. Oh, Chrissy, I know. I know you didn't mean it that way, but you know how it sounds, right? After I just told you why MTV wouldn't play black musicians. Back back to what she said. If you look at the videos that were made back then, they look silly now. Again, that was very true. Someday I would love to do a podcast where I just do nothing but MST3K riff on very early 80s music videos. God damn it. Except I could never get the movie rights. I'm sorry. I'm becoming incredibly distracted. This show is also very, very long. Going back to Chrissy Hahn, the pomposity of it. You could smell the money that went into it, unquote. And she isn't wrong to say that. She was wrong to say that black music isn't rock and roll. I have long believed that MTV and music videos took away something from music in exchange for the incredible exposure and the incredible amounts of money that it gave musicians. And what it took away was... Talent. See, prior to the advent of music videos, one of the preconditions of being a professional musician in any genre was the ability to, I don't know perform music you didn't need to be a virtuoso but you needed to have some basic ability all you needed to do after mtv was look like you could play and perform music and if you need further proof i present poor robin fob they weren't the villains, people. They were the victims because the system that powered MTV favored image over ability. And that hasn't really changed today. Britney Spears cannot sing for shit. This is her actual vocal track from her live performances during her residency in Las Vegas. I'm sorry I have to play this for you. Boys, sounds like both just needs Yeah, no tighter than that. Boys, lover and old. Justin Bieber? You think that little shit can sing? Please. Now look, I I love me some Lady Gaga, but Lady Gaga sounds fucking terrible with that auto-tune. And even Taylor Swift. Dave! Dave, no! Who is an extremely talented musician doesn't really have a great natural singing voice. It's it's all post-production. Music videos didn't cause this, but it enabled people with no real musical talent. But look, 
good to become famous musicians. Look, you need to understand how fucking huge this was for one generation and pretty much one generation only. Music videos were a Gen X thing. Boomers were oblivious and for millennials, music videos were ubiquitous and yeah, they would say they're important. But for Gen X, they were our thing. It was how we listened to music, how we watched music. Music television was music. And of course, we still had records, tapes, and then CDs, and radio was always there. But the way we experienced music was on MTV. It was where we learned about new artists, how we discovered existing artists, and formed our mental associations with the bands. More than that, MTV and music videos created Gen X's superstars. I mean, you think TikTok is where it's at now, but that's nothing compared to MTV. And of course, nothing gold can stay. By the 90s, the network was branching out. The all music, all the time model was pushed aside for some music some of the time, making way for game shows that had a model with great tits who would go on to become an anti-vaxxer nut and Beavis and Butthead, who would go on to become a model for pretty much the national intellectual level of the nation. And eventually, it pushed away for the real world, which of course made way for the man who became president that represents the intellectual level of the nation. As this episode was in production, Paramount announced that MTV News was shutting down, which was shocking because no one was even remotely aware that MTV News had been in production for like the past 20 years. And of course, the music videos didn't just stop one day. They, they faded away. Music videos were and are still made. They remain a vital part of the musicians' repertoire and to perform their original function of marketing an artist and showcasing their work. They just don't play on television. Video may have killed the radio star, but MTV died by a thousand cuts and YouTube just put it out of its misery. But hey, at least MTV gave us music for a little while. And most of all, it gave us this. That is it for the show this week. We are back on our bullshit. Not gonna lie, folks. Been in a writing slump lately. It's been harder and harder to... Yeah, I almost put in a drop in there, but you know I'm better than that. That's what she said. Apparently I'm not. Speaking of being boringly predictable, rate and review the show so other good folks can find the show, take a listen, and find the show boringly predictable with outdated jokes. Now, look, if you find out jokes worthy of a dollar, kick it to us at patreon.com slash whatthehellpodcast. Now, do everything Jeremy tells you to do in the closing. Otherwise, you'll be forced to play just the same same 12 podcast over and over to fill up all the empty air. And so for me, Dave, I heard you on the wireless back in 52 lying awake intended tuning in on you when I was young it didn't stop you coming through but so producer they took the credit for your second symphony rewritten by machine on new technology honestly chat GPT could write a better script than him Gavin and all the fictional VJs on this show we want to say you really can put all the blame on VCRs I mean they're dead and gone they they won't even know and we'll see you all next week Oh, 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 oh.
What the hell were you thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings podcast network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What The Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. That's rad.